Hi, my name is Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I'm joined today on the podcast by the fascinating John Elliott. We discuss John's journey from growing up in LA playing basketball to becoming a legal ops leader who is now manager of legal operations and technology at Netflix. John, thank you so much for joining me. No, pleasure to be here, Alex. Thank you. John, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Uh, proudly right here in Los Angeles, born and raised in Pasadena, home of the Rose Parade and the Rose Bowl, which most people are familiar with. Never really ventured too far outside of here for schooling or much of uh, employment. And so was that a contributing factor to deciding to study at Claremont McKenna College? Yeah, very much so. I, I don't know if any of you saw me at clock. I'm on the taller side and played basketball in, in high school. So it was recruited by a couple colleges, fortunately, some of which were on the East Coast. But most of my family is here in and around Los Angeles and, and Pasadena. So I wanted to keep it somewhat local. And Claremont McKenna seemed compelling. They have a well-known liberal arts school close to home. I could play basketball, but also kind of advance my studies. So it, it was a big factor. There's a lot of pluses there and something I can certainly relate to. I know in, in the U.S. it's more common for people to maybe travel a little bit further afield for college. But yeah, like yourself, I, uh, I stayed pretty close to home in Dublin for, for college. There's a lot of pluses to having family nearby. I played rugby myself, not basketball. I'm not nowhere near as tall as you are. I <laughs> uh, was able to kind of do those two things through college, which was a lot of fun. And did you have any idea at that stage what you wanted to do in life? None. I was just kind of focused on the short-term road ahead of me. At the moment, it was just graduating in basketball. I, I dabbled in, in a few other sports, water polo and track, which kept me busy and well-rounded. I like to stay active. But at that time, no. If anything, coming out of Claremont, I knew I didn't want to be in the political space. <laughs> that was for sure. I said a political science. But kind of going through that, I took a few legal courses and I don't know if it was officially like a minor in legal studies, but I really kind of gravitated towards that. I don't know. Most people who know me, I'm a little bit type A, a bit of a pragmatist, and I maybe like to debate a little bit. So those aspects of the legal side of those studies certainly called to me, but not so much that I wanted to become a lawyer. So it was something I just kind of put in my back pocket for consideration as I, as I got into my professional journey. But no, no, at the time, I, I didn't had no clue what I wanted to be. Well, at that age, it's it's as important to kind of eliminate career paths. And um, so, yeah, it'd be great <laughs> to get that clarity that the right. career in politics wasn't for you. And what was your first job then after graduating? Let's see, what was it? I worked for an institutional bond manager in Pasadena called Western Asset Management. They were a subsidiary of a larger company called Leg Mason. And I was in the compliance department. I think my official title was compliance officer. And I had probably no clue what I was doing in the first few months. <laughs> it was Excel work and making sure that we were following guidelines of our in investors. And so it was a lot of reading guidelines, making sure we had a few systems that were governing these guidelines. You know, it's not dissimilar looking back on it to kind of e-billing systems of today, but really getting my feet wet in the space of finance, which I ended up kind of sticking with for many number of years afterwards. I've, my background is predominantly finance. So that's what got kind of my beak wet in that space. Did I like it? I don't know. It, it, was, a, it was a good first job. My, my parents always said that finance companies had great, uh, great benefits and they did. Uh, so I, I liked it. I liked it. And honestly, it got me 
a good deal of exposure to Excel. <laughs> and that was probably my favorite part of it at the time. Yeah, and those early jobs, it's often about the kind of the core skills that you take away, whether it's kind of practical things like Excel or even just being a part of a large organization and understanding how things work and starting to orientate yourself with that environment. Did you feel that gave you a kind of a reasonable understanding of how a large uh, financial services organization worked? Yeah, it did. It did. I, I didn't mind the culture of it. It was fast paced. It, it was friendly. It was a West Coast firm. So there was a, there's a bit of an East Coast stigma against a lot of finance firms. This one didn't have it. I enjoyed a lot of the people still friends with some of them. And yeah, the core skills of interacting on a team, which I found very important transitioning over from the sport topic. That was great. Understanding the different org units within a company, finance and others how they interacted, where the sensitivities were, and then understanding the language of finance. I think that's something that is not necessarily unique to that industry. I think that you have to have a pretty good acumen for that, even outside as, as you're dealing with other areas of, you know, here in entertainment and, and other companies, I think it's important to know. An interesting point you made there, obviously you played basketball competitively at a very high level. Do you find yourself gravitating towards team environments? And I can, again, kind of relate to that, having kind of played rugby at a kind of seriously through high school and then in college for a while. And that team aspect is something that's always, uh, always been important to me in roles and in kind of finding things that drive me and give me purpose. Is that something that has been important to you through your career? Oh, very much so. I love playing on a high-functioning team uh, where there's strong relationships. You can trust one another. You can give that open, candid feedback. You look to yourself to have that responsibility and discipline for the betterment of the team. I mm -hmm. think that applies in sports and in my professional career, very much so. So I think that's that's really been a big factor as I've considered employment at other places and I as I've moved about my career and when continuing to do so when growing my team here at Netflix and... Uh, Outside, you know, just personally and professionally, I think that, that kind of attitude is important. 100%. And it's always a kind of a good point of validation if somebody has played team sports, that they understand that dynamic and it can be a major plus uh, in their kind of subsequent professional career. What prompted you then to kind of return to college to complete an MBA? Well, you know, the thought of a two-year break... <laughs> From the professional space, it was certainly nice. I knew I always wanted an advanced degree. It was something my family always encouraged me to do. And we're very generous with, with offering to support me in at the time. So I certainly wanted to take advantage of that. I thought it was very important to have a few years of professional experience under my belt before doing that. Um, I think a lot of those lessons learned at Western Asset could be applied to my studies and to further elevate kind of the takeaways of those two years of getting my MBA. The timing was great. I think it was right around the recession. So I could kind of duck out for a couple of years while that the financial crisis subsided and just to grow professionally and to kind of understand. I, I really I got deep into the weeds of political science in undergrad, but I felt like I didn't have that understanding of business at a higher level. And so whether or not I wanted to start my own career or own business, separate from that, all of that was going to be supported by an advanced education. And that was so it was really good timing. And something you touched on there, I think is so important, having had those few years of work experience under your belt. And as you, as you spoke about having developed some core skills, gained an understanding of how business operates, how financial services works as an industry, presumably kind of set you up to get much more out of the MBA and have much more context. When you think back now, 
what were the kind of key skills that you developed on the MBA that have kind of stayed with you through your subsequent career? The biggest one, and it's such a technical one, is I, I kind of did a focus. I got my degree in entrepreneurship and multivariable data analytics. <laughs> and it was the analytics component that I, I just really fell in love with. I love numbers. I loved Excel. I knew that going into it. And this was a way to look at the world where variables kind of helped predict outcomes. And you could apply it to anything. I, I tell my friends, like, you can apply it to forecasting budgets for a legal case. You can apply it to, you know, pool cleaning business. There's, you can apply, you know, variable analysis, correlations, regression analysis, all of those kind of heavy terms. <laughs> if, if you kind of have enough data about the thing you're looking at, you can have a good predictable outcome if you knew how to, to manipulate that data. So I loved it. That was probably number one. There was a legal studies class, kind of coming back to the whole, I, there's this undercurrent of legal interest throughout my studies. That was there. The teacher really kind of excited me more about legal at the business level. So those were the two big ones. And then kind of honing my interpersonal skills and working with the teams less so about in sports, but more so about business and refining those interactions, how you communicate, how you work, effective presentations. I think that was a huge one. In my entrepreneurship classes, we really focused on those pitches, those 30-second elevator things. How do you pitch to investors? That was great if you want to start your own business. That's really good if you just want to become a, a very sharp, polished presenter. And if you think of life as a, a large part of it as sales, <laughs> in any aspect that you land in, being a good presenter, I think, is a, a key component to being a good salesman or a woman. 100%, whether selling a product or selling your vision for legal operations and a particular project. It's something I talk to the team here, Bright Flag, a lot about the importance of having strong presentation skills, understanding your audience, having a concise message, ensuring people are taking away the right message from the presentation and that you're capturing their attention is is a skill you can definitely develop and hone. I don't think anyone is kind of born a natural presenter necessarily, but, but <laughs> definitely something you can work on. And you've kind of mentioned a few times now that this kind of curiosity about legal had reared its head through your undergrad and then your MBA. And you, you then went on to a business role with a large law firm. And I, I spent my early career as a lawyer in a law firm. And I know the attitude of many lawyers and equity partners in firms is that legal spend is in entirely unpredictable. And I suspect you, like me, disagree with that sentiment. How did you find that work in a law firm, in a business role, given your kind of at the analytical skills you had developed? What attracted you to it, first of all? And then and what was your kind of initial experience of it? Yeah, yeah. I think looking back on it at the time, I didn't even appreciate it was a law firm that I was applying to. I was kind of scrolling around one day, just curiously what, what the open roles in the space looked like around Los Angeles. And there was one that really stood out because it was like, oh, there's some legal understanding and there's analytics and forecasting. And I don't know, there were just the job description was written in a way that really attracted me. The core skills seemed right. And I thought it was going to be at a finance firm, just again, by the way it was written. But it turned out to be kind of a finance role in a law firm. As I looked up the company's name, I didn't know much at the time. So it was those core skills of understanding data, forecasting, some legal characteristics, which I knew a little bit at the time. So just kind of on a whim, I threw my name in the hat because it sounded really interesting, the day to the day. It was a new department that was getting started. I really liked that aspect about it, kind of new challenges, hyper growth role within this company. 
and kind of getting to set some best practices in those few areas that I really knew that I liked a lot. So that's what first turned me on to the role. And I'm really glad I took it because it's really blossomed into kind of this industry that I find myself in now. Absolutely. And I know many legal operations leaders like yourself, the likes of Mary O'Carroll, started their life in similar law firm roles. How did the role evolve then over the kind of four and a half years you spent at the law firm? It, it evolved drastically. We started out, I think the goal of the department at the time was really to help our attorneys respond to these RFP requests. I think looking back, I can't remember the year, was it 2010, something around then? Firms were getting very savvy and very detailed about budgets and forecasting and expectations, right? They were much more accountable for legal spend than they had been before. So they were asking attorneys at, at every law firm, you know, give me some dependability that this number is going to be the number or within a couple percentage points of being the number. And attorneys are very smart, but they wanted some support in responding to that because there's a whole world of data that kind of underpins those responses. And the law firms had it. <laughs> It was just very messy and all over the place. So I would say the first year was honestly just creating kind of a database of comparable analytics, right? How much does a deposition cost? How much does a motion to dismiss? How can you break down, this was a litigation firm, all aspects of litigation to these very bite-sized pieces, put in some kind of range that each one of them can fall in, talking about variability, if it's in certain jurisdictions or if it's a certain topic or a certain type of client, layer in those variabilities to understand how close can we get, right? So that we can confidently say, this is going to be a million dollars. So that, again, that those very early days was just analyzing the data, cleaning it up, establishing the best practices. So when the data going into the system could be used in the future in a very clean, quick way, then it evolved into kind of being closer partners with our attorneys to get a bit more strategic about how we were responding, right? There's a lot of components to these RFP responses, and we want to take into those account and grow relationships and all of that stuff that a law firm wants to project out onto their client base. So once we became trusted partners on the data side, it was more, all right, how do we get better on the development side? And that was a very fun part of the job as well, but all based in numbers <laughs> and Excel. As I mentioned, working in a law firm around the same time in a, a corporate M&A practice, I was kind of tasked with trying to come up with pricing models when we were quoting for work. It does not sound like it was anywhere near as scientific as the work that you were doing. But I'm interested to understand the kind of the response or the attitude from the lawyers you were working with. Did they kind of buy into the predictability of the analysis or was there ever that kind of sense of every case is unique or this isn't factoring in all of the variables that might impact the outcome or how this will evolve as, as the litigation proceeds. Yeah, I would say early on, there was a fair amount of skepticism. I mean, most lawyers I know are inherently curious, right? They want to trust you, but, but show them how the soup is made. And once we came armed with just a huge database of information, that was a lot of which were their matters, right? These are their time entries. These are their hours book. These are their descriptions, their rates. So once we showed them exactly how we came to those numbers, there was a lot of trust gained very quickly, right? Because the numbers don't lie. But I would say that was probably about 70 to 80% of the work, right? So we can come up with what we think is a good estimate. And that gets us most of the way there. But it's, we're always going to rely on the attorneys to kind of fine tune that last mile. And so we work very closely with them coming up with the right number based on the unique characteristics of that case and accounting kind of for their gut and their good judgment. And so it was never a one-way relationship. 
We leveraged data a lot, but it was also something that we collaborated closely with our attorneys on. So those relationships and that approach developed even more trust. We got very quick at this. We got a lot of comfort and there was two-way trust. So it resulted in a very effective department. And back in 2010, this was like an emerging field and function in law firms. And as you mentioned, that was something that attracted you to the role in the first place. Did you have any mentors at that point in your career that played an important role in in your development? Not in the traditional sense, I don't think. Worked very closely with my boss. It was encouraging. We were kind of both going through it together. But I don't know. I can't pinpoint a specific mentor at the time for better or worse. And when you think back now, how has that kind of experience working in the law firm been beneficial subsequently in in your career in legal operations, whether the kind of core analytical skills you further honed or the kind of empathy and understanding of the role of the law firms as a trusted partner? What are the kind of key things that you've taken with you? Yeah, all of the above. I think understanding the law firm culture, it was huge. How does a law firm work? How do partners interact? How do associates matriculate? All all of that stuff just enables the conversations that I continue to have with attorneys, gives them more confidence in me. Learning the language of litigations, that probably took me a year to understand. (laughs) Talk about, you know, phase and task codes, right? We were doing predictive analytics on every single aspect of it. And attorneys don't often give you a lot of time to talk about this stuff. So you have to be very efficient with your communication. So not only learning that language, but then being able to deliver it quickly and effectively became a really important skill that I continue to lean on today. Understanding the data and the rates, how do rates work? How do rates change? I mean, that's something that is so important in this role and almost every role because there's so much so many numbers behind it. So those have been huge. Um, and then relationships, honestly, I feel like having worked at a, a very well-regarded litigation firm here in Los Angeles, it's a network that I continue to tap into. You know, what are you seeing on your end? Do you want to test a product with me? It's that kind of stuff that I've taken away. And a little bit of systems exposure, right? We we were working very closely with those time entry systems, the elites uh, of the world. And so kind of having that understanding of how their data flows so that now I'm on the in-house side, how do we can tap into that or evolve that? Talking about accruals and all these other uh, functions of legal, having that understanding of how it works on the other side of the fence has really enabled a lot more sophisticated work on this side. Yeah, something you touched on there, dealing with litigators in particular, Mark Eldridge, who leads legal operations at Garden Health, was on the podcast recently, and he made the point that they can smell blood in the water, that they can be sharks, <laughs> and I suspect your, your kind of presentation skills that you honed on your MBA became pretty pretty uh, important in, in keeping their attention and, and making sure you're getting your point across. Yeah, and I don't mean to malign attorneys. I'm just saying, you know, they weren't used to having those budget conversations. No one likes talking about budgets, right? <laughs> restricting money and then being held accountable for a number that there could be so much about a case that changes that they don't, they don't know, right? It's very reactive business. So, so you had to, again, develop that, that confidence in, in yourself and in them. And those relationships grew to be pretty strong. And then fast forward to kind of 2016, I think that was the year I went to the first clock conference in in San Francisco. Legal operations was starting to cross the chasm and become more well understood as a prerequisite to a modern corporate legal department. What led to you jumping across the divide and moving into legal operations? 
you know, I I think that you know the the law firm culture was great. I learned a lot from it. It's tough. It's tough. And I think I was approached. I can't remember the exact advent of this, but an opportunity came about at a private equity firm here in Los Angeles. And it was similar as the law firm was four years earlier when I first joined. It was just getting this department started. They were looking for someone with kind of the skills that I was very drawn to, the data component of it. They added in, they layered in this law firm management aspect of it that I was now pretty pretty skilled with having worked at the law firm. I think in-house clients at the time were looking for a lot of knowledge about law firms. So they were hungry to hire people from away from law firms that were in these roles. You know, what do they call it? Pricing project management. I can't remember the third P. So there was a general counsel at this private equity firm who, who wanted that kind of support, who could get deep into the data, help manage the law firms, and just make some sense of the data world around him. That was very appealing to me because I got to start all over again, build something from the ground up, which I very much like doing. It's a challenge for sure. And then there was the, the nice perks of private equity companies. <laughs> at the time, they were still, you know, Wolfgang Puck was catering things and it seemed like a nice culture where you didn't have to be a lawyer to be uh, hyper successful. So those things were, were piqued my interest at the time. And something you touched on there, I think is so true. The kind of first generation of legal operations leaders like yourself, the fact that that kind of background and grounding in, in business roles within law firms, focusing on pricing and analytics was uh, where forward-thinking general counsel look to to find the person to build out their legal ops function makes a huge amount of sense, particularly if kind of management of outside counsel, spend management, financial management, data analysis was a core part of, of what they were looking to do. What was the structure of, of the legal team at Ares, the private equity firm, when you joined? Yeah, so it was, there was three departments all under the general counsel. It was legal, compliance, and regulatory. Um, and I want to say it was a little over 100 individuals all working collaboratively and rolling up again to the general counsel. And then this role, the head of legal operations, which I assumed was just sitting in there governing in the beginning, mostly just law firm stuff. That was the biggest pain point that they identified when I joined. So it was outside counsel management. And then once that kind of stabilized, expanding to a couple of other areas, but supporting those three. And then working closely with finance for efforts like budgeting and, and some your typical cross-functional efforts. And can you remember how you went about kind of defining your initial set of priorities and kind of building consensus around them when you joined? Yeah, that was an easy one, right? I, I, I would just kind of march into everyone's office and say, hi, I'm John Elliott. <laughs> I do this legal operations thing. What are your pain points? <laughs> and, and contracts management at the time wasn't a big one. It wasn't big on the radar. I think they had a decent management on that. But everyone complained about the e-billing system. It was like, oh my God, it takes forever to do this. And I have no visibility. And the thing's always broken and yada, yada, yada. So that was like the consistent thing. And then when I'm talking to the general counsel, it's, yeah, I want some better uh, control over rates. I mean, our law firms are coming to us every year with these massive rate increases. How do we get kind of a better defense against that, or at least a sanity check to make sure that those are, that those are reasonable or we're optimizing discounts? So all of that, again, led towards this whole outside council management space, which is where I focused probably my first year, year and a half. Um, and that included leveling the landscape of law firms, seeing where there was overlap on spend, and probably the biggest initiative, which was replacing their e-billing tool. But that was an easy decision, right? Like I knew I was going <laughs> to score a lot of points if I did it right. So, so that's what we did. 
And looking back now, John, what would you say was the most impactful project that you delivered in the kind of almost three years that you were there? In terms of like visible impact, it was probably the dollar savings and the discounts we negotiated with law firms. I mean, that's that's your headline almost everywhere you go with this outside council management function is how much you save. And if they hadn't been doing anything before, which I think they had a little bit, but once we we turned the volume up on that, we saw some real savings. So that was probably number one. And number two was probably quickly implementing a new e-billing system that people really liked, captured more data. People were getting in and, in and out a lot quicker. It was better aligned with the organization of the function. We could get a lot better reporting. All of those benefits that come along with people actually using a tool and workflows that accommodate the business and the function, then it was a big one. And in a financial services firm like that and a private equity firm like that, was there the kind of scrutiny coming from finance that you might see in a technology company? Was there that kind of drive for accurate forecasting and kind of strong annual budgeting processes? Is that something that was part of that? Or was it more about the kind of driving dollar cost savings with the firms and improving the lawyer's user experience in managing their matters? It was both. It was, I don't know if it was 50-50, but it was close. You know, um, my stakeholders were the attorneys. So getting them a good experience in there and, and helping them to better manage their law firms was huge. But there was a ton of scrutiny at the finance company. I mean, they had very sophisticated business practices around budgeting and forecasting. And that's I remember it was a stressful time of year when those came around. And I worked very closely with finance to tap into those numbers in the system and to give everyone more insight to help them predict. In addition, because we were a... Uh, uh, investment firm, we had just, I think, thousands of entities. So entity management was just surprisingly <laughs> this massive ship that we had to help control, making sure that funds were getting paid from the right entity, right? You can have one, one fund with 10 different accounts all over the place. So how do you make sure that your matters are set up to, to pay out of the right one? And then the reporting of all of that, right? The, the, regulator, the regulators wanted to make sure that you were pretty accurate on that front. So that was probably the surprise one, but the first two you mentioned were, were the biggest. And presumably your early experience working in compliance roles in the financial services industry just helped in your, the level of context and understanding you had about how these things are structured, how a fund is structured, and the importance of entity management, for instance, which, which may be more challenging for a legal ops professional coming from a different background to kind of get their head around. Yeah, for sure. And my mom's side of the family is Italian. So I'm inherently very anxious and nervous and assuming the worst. So you layer that onto years of compliance and then regulators always kind of <laughs> looking over your shoulder. It was tense, but you know, it, it formed some, some pretty effective practices. I think we got really good at it and captured a lot more detail so that people, the decision makers of the firms, the C-suite could then use to make their best decisions. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just giving them the information that I see. I'm kind of massaging the data in a way that they can interpret to help steer the business in the right direction. So, so that was really the end game and helped take some of the pressure off me. And what then attracted you to obviously a very different industry in joining the legal team at Netflix? Yeah, you know, Jen McCarran did. I think it was a, a, maybe a SoCal clock uh, regional meeting. And I think I was presenting on a rollout of simple legal at the time, which is what we implemented at the, at the private equity firm. And I got to talking to Jen afterwards, and I think she had just joined here. And the energy that exudes from her about the space and about Netflix was, <laughs> was hard to ignore. 
so that combined with growing up in Los Angeles, I mean, the entertainment world has been in my backyard for a long time. And then you hear about all the perks of tech companies. It's just, there was one after another, another that, that got me very interested very quickly in this role. And talk about, again, starting it from the ground up. I mean, Jen had just joined to build up the legal ops team and the outside counsel ma management space hadn't yet existed. So uh, very appealing to me to be able to start something anew and, and build kind of in my own vision with support of a lot of other people. And, and I wasn't gonna do it by myself, of course, but that kind of entrepreneurial spirit was strong here. And then on top of the culture, I mean, the culture here, it's one of those things they said, oh, read the culture memo, read the culture memo. And I was like, okay, this, this is awesome, but there's no way in practice that can, and it really does. And so after talking to people who had been in and around it, uh, I found that to be even a bigger draw. And we've had the pleasure of having Jen on the podcast and I've, I've known her now for a number of years. So going back to your point about the importance of, of strong sales skills, I can see that Jen would be incredibly compelling in selling that vision. And Netflix is a company who obviously are an incredible success story and someone we've looked to in terms of how you've gone about building the culture there. Uh, it, it is truly remarkable. I've read that culture deck and the people deck, and it, it sounds like an incredibly rewarding place to work that moves at an incredibly fast pace. But presumably, no disrespect to Ares, but presumably it was an extremely different culture. And, and I'd be interested to understand how that actually affects your approach to, to going about scaling legal ops in a very different type of business. Yeah, it is different. And, and not for not for better or worse necessarily. It's just here at Netflix, the pace is, is quite a bit faster. Um, I think change is constant uh, for a lot of different reasons. And so skills like flexibility, adaptability, how do you make workflows and not really rigid processes? How do you adapt to a lot of different stakeholders? Just this sheer size of the department was much, much bigger. So with that comes different issues as well. A very global business. Aries had global offices, but this is, I mean, truly global scale, right? Every continent, <laughs> lots of countries. So the challenges were much, much different, but all enabled by the culture. I mean, if the people weren't so open to change, leaning into innovating, lots of transparency and communication, I don't think it would work as well, but, but it does for all those reasons. And, and a really interesting topic of conversation at Summit by the Sea a few weeks ago, which was raised by Casey Flaherty was the fact that as a business scales, necessarily the scope and the scale of the, the legal department in terms of it, it, internal headcount, outside counsel spend is going to increase. And you, it is obviously necessary to have appropriate controls in place over the spend externally, over the headcount. But if you're going from kind of a 5 billion revenue business to a 10 billion, 15, 20 billion, you are necessarily going to have to scale the legal department and legal operations significantly. And, and, and it's, it's necessary for legal leadership, for legal operations to have that mindset of it's not about doing more with less. It's, it's about kind of facilitating legal leadership to kind of support the business case for further investment, whether it's in additional internal headcount, new technologies, additional external counsel support. Have you kind of witnessed that journey at Netflix where you're on that drive to be more efficient and moving at incredible pace, but necessarily the legal function has grown incredibly quickly on that journey? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And everyone looks as us. I mean, operations, as the name suggests, will, will help implement scale and efficient growth. So we are certainly here to be partners in that and to do it smartly. Like we're, we're not going to be the ones to 
really restrict how you do things and tell everyone that you can no longer do this, that, and the other. We look at this as a true partnership and come up with creative way to solve those problems and lean on the good judgment of our stakeholders to inform some of our decisions. So, you know, I think one of the biggest opportunities for me has been instead of coming in with solutions, it's to better understand problems and work collaboratively in the right solution for everyone. I see things from one lens where other stakeholders across the department might have a different opinion. So it really puts the importance on relationships, openness of communication, and then problem identification, right? That changes almost daily. So we're always reprioritizing. But to your point about scale and growth, what's gonna, what's gonna better the business? <laughs> and that's, it's a constant challenge for myself and, and everyone around because it's, it's unpredictable. And can you walk us through how you structure a legal operations team to kind of support such a fast-paced business? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone does it a little bit differently. I know there are there there. Most other companies I've seen have very function specific units. So you've got document management, knowledge management, outside council management. We have it a little bit different. Outside council management is is dedicated, and then we have kind of a front of house, back of house format, where the front of house team is kind of canvassing stakeholders for opportunities, working with them for implementation, training, very kind of outward facing functions. And then we have our, our back of house team, which is focused more on the tech component of it all, building the systems, finding the systems, troubleshooting, making sure that we have the right systems in place, and then partnering very closely with front of house for those hands off when it's implementation time, working together for implementations, and just for general findings and thought sharing. So that's how it's worked well for us. It's allowed us to be highly adaptable, flexible, tap into project management skills that can be used for a number of projects, whether they be specific to document management, contract management, whatever. At the moment, outside counsel is such a unique beast that it, it continues to stand alone, but uh, we, we share a lot of similar skills. So it's going back to that whole, how well does a team work together? I think it's been great over here for, with this team. And something you referenced a few minutes ago was staying close to what the business is trying to achieve and looking to solve problems. How do you ensure you're staying aligned with the business and the in-house team in such a fast-paced environment? Presumably you can't kind of set a three-year roadmap and just kind of drive head down towards that. Is, is it more agile? Is it more iterative in how you work with the in-house team and with the business? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of communication in around our big projects, right? We know where the hot topics are in any given year, right? So that's where I'm speaking about myself. We put a majority of our efforts and then we identify our stakeholders and we're keeping them up to date as those projects are developing. But as is the case in every business, stuff comes up. So we do leave a fair amount of room to adapt to those kind of ad hoc questions or shift. So go ahead and getting back to that flexibility and adaptability, that becomes a huge component of our work and not being so hyper-specialized that we can't kind of pivot quickly, very quickly. And I keep coming back to speed because that's such a key component to our success is adapting quickly when those needs shift a little bit and going back to relationships, super strong relationships. So no one hesitates when coming to me, if they've identified something new or different, ongoing communication with the leads across our very depart our varying departments is, is important and you know, not getting too married to one way. And do you find the the profile of in-house lawyer is a little bit different in an organization like Netflix? Are they a little bit more tech savvy, a little bit more open to kind of creative solutions and not as, as kind of fixed in their view of the way in which they work? 
Yeah, definitely. I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Uh, attorneys are always pushing the envelope in terms of how can this workflow do better? How can this system uh, present better? How can my interaction with it improve or get more efficient? They're always asking those questions, which is awesome because that's something that I would be doing. And so to have a counterpart to kind of brainstorm with has been awesome. And then when you're such a retail facing company and you have such a polished interface, like you know when you log into Netflix, that's kind of like the golden state. That's what you're always working towards. So make sure that interaction with our tech is really sharp. So if that's everyone's benchmark, then we're, we'll always be busy working towards it. And John, really, really appreciate you you taking the time to share your insights, a fascinating journey, a remarkable success story in terms of what you've built at Netflix and uh, really excited to see what you do in the future. John, unrelated to the world of legal operations, can I ask, do you have a favorite Netflix show? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have a favorite, you know, Stranger Things is always a, is a hot one. I think season five was amazing. I just watched Dahmer, which was <laughs> disturbing, but very well done. I love the Narcos ones. Those, those crime dramas were great. I'm watching Narcos Saints right now. I don't know if that says anything about me that I've kind of hit the vein of drugs and violence, um, but those are always, always captivating. And the stand-up stuff I find like almost universally. I love, I love the Netflix stand-up specials, so... Uh, I'm usually quick to watch those. No, there's an unending body of incredible content there. Certainly got myself, my wife through the pandemic, binge watching Stranger Things like yourself. The Last Dance, I wouldn't have been a massive basketball fan, but that was incredible. <laughs> so uh, yeah, big, big Netflix fans in our house. And unrelated to Netflix uh, recommendations, what do you enjoy doing in your spare time? Yeah, most of my family is, uh, my immediate family is here in and around Los Angeles. I've got two adorable little nieces that are down in Newport Beach. So I see them often. They're ages two and five. So they're just a ton of fun to be an uncle for. And so that's great. There's probably find me at Wally's here in West LA on a weekend, maybe great, great hero sandwich that I like very much. I try to stay active. I'm thinking about taking up tennis, but try to work out and stay they fit and active. I feel like that helps again, back to that sports thing, kind of keep my body sharp and my mind focused but, and hoping to travel a little bit more. COVID really kind of took the wind out of those sails, but I do have family in Italy that I would love to go see again soon. So that's in my, my near-term agenda. You'd be a great doubles partner in, in tennis, John, at the net. <laughs> I, yeah, I can see that. I can see that working. And I'm sure it's nice as the as the cool uncle to to see the, see the kids and then say goodbye to the kids. I've got a, a two-year-old and a three-year-old girl myself. So we, we don't have that luxury, but I'm sure I'm sure that's a, a lot of fun. And and certainly if you if you make your way over to Europe, maybe we can we can convince you to 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 stop by in Ireland as well. You do a bit of surfing as well, John, do you? I just looked the part. It's been a while since I've actually done it. It's a shame that I don't. I'm, I am pretty close to Santa Monica Beach, but I haven't been able to find the time quite yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, John, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you, Alex. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. 
Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.